Good classroom environments. Are they more than just a room full of IKEA furniture? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with educational neuroscience since 1999. If you're looking for science-based language, learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And you can subscribe to this podcast completely for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or your favourite podcast service or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Cultures of Thinking is an educational framework that emerged from the work of Ron Richard and the Project Zero team at Harvard University. This episode belongs to an eight-part series where I delve into each of the eight cultural forces that, according to Ron Richard, we must master in order to truly transform our schools. My guest in the series is Simon Brooks, who spent years implementing cultures of thinking into his classrooms and now helps teachers introduce the framework into their schools. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of the eight cultural forces with an emphasis on the practical ways to implement the theory behind it all. This is part eight, where we discuss the cultural force of environments. Environments, the surrounding conditions or influences in which a person operates. Although most educators inherit a physical environment fashioned for an old paradigm of learning, there is still much that can be done in the design of that space to facilitate and promote a culture of thinking. Simon, are we talking about feng shui? <laughs> I, th- I think we're, we're talking about the physical environment being the body language of an organization. That's, I think, a really good way of thinking about environment. That if we think about body language being with with people as being a very um, palpable way that they send messages about what they are valuing, so too does the physical environment of an organisation. It questions such as: Does this organisation value thinking, or does it inhibit thinking? Are answered, I think, through the physical environment of an organisation. So if I'm going to answer your question, if we think about what Feng Shui is, I think Feng Shui is all about organizing space in relation to the flow of energy. So if that is what Feng Shui is about, then, well, yes, I think that is part of the big consideration of the of the cultural force of the physical environment. You know, how, how might the physical environment be an energy booster and a thinking primer for the learners that exist within it? The body language of a physical space. Now, that's a, a very powerful concept. I quite like that. And look, this really is quite a serious consideration. I don't mean to make light of this in any way at all. However, there is a lot of controversy around environments and spaces, particularly given that that's something that you can very easily spend a lot of money on. Mm. There's, a, there's a quote in the chapter that goes like this, saying that factories are about efficiency, conformity, and control. Hence, we have classrooms of the same size set up in largely the same way. When the bell rings, students flow out of their classroom into the corridor so as to progress to their next stop along the line. This design feature of schools has been referred to as cells and bells, equating classrooms not only with factories, but also with prisons. Is it really that bad? Well, first of all, I'm enjoying the assonance of cells and bells. Um, And... That is what that phrase suggests, isn't it? That not only factories, but prisons. If we think about what a cell does, well, a cell is the same for every individual person that might reside within each, within each different cell. It's, it's a similar experience. And then the bells also facilitate um, smooth movement and transition from one place to another, perhaps sending a message 
that the uh, inmates themselves can't be trusted to self-organize in that respect. Um, it definitely makes control and supervision much easier. I think cells and bells are in the gene pool, and we've used that phrase before, a phrase that comes from Ken Robinson, within the gene pool of education. And I would say that probably the vast majority of schools in the world are still set up with that cells and bells paradigm as the dominant one. It's interesting, actually, just this morning as I was thinking about our interview, which was uh, going to happen later today, uh, I went for a cycle very early in the morning, and uh, that's when things are still very dark. And and on my regular ride, I I go past a primary school, and uh, the lights on the inside of the building happened to be on, and I got a very good glimpse into the building because it was dark outside and light inside. And it was an old Australian design, and it gave me the uh, that you know, remember the days of the old schoolyard kind of feel. And as I as I went past, I thought, oh, there's a corridor and there's a door and then there's another door and then there's another door. And it really did have that kind of cells sort of feeling. And I thought, what if it really is that bad? And what if, it, what if there are lots and lots of buildings that are still really around there like that? What, what are the negative effects on thinking in an environment like this? The first thing I'd like to say in consequence of that question, and this is interesting, is that I think there are a lot of adults that think back to their learning experience in cells not that long ago when they were students and have some really rich and amazing memories of their time learning in spaces like that. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And I will, I'm not sidestepping your question, I'll, I'll answer it in a second, but I think it is what happens within a space that is the most important factor. You know. And we can create a large open plan learning space with soft furnishings and um, access to online resources so that learning is self-directed. You know, we can do all of that. But if that means abandoning the rich person to person interactions that we talked about in the previous podcast in this series, which are so crucial to building a culture of thinking, then I'm not sure that the payoff um, is worth the loss. But I will answer your question about the potential negative effects on an environment like this. Well, if if cells send a message that learning is about receiving information, and then if that's what happens inside that space, then obviously that's tremendously damaging to build a building a culture of thinking. And bells, well, if bells send the message that learning can be broken up into separate discrete experiences, that I'm going to learn my maths. And then the bell will ring and I'll stop learning maths and then I'm going to begin learning English. Then maybe the message is sent that learning is discrete and not connected. And we know that in a culture of thinking, we're looking to try to build as many connections both within and between disciplines as we can. Maybe cells and bells as part of the cultural force of of environment are counter effective in terms of building a culture of thinking. I'd just like to come back to the comment that you made there on uh adults remembering back to their time in what they would call a cell. As you were saying that, I recalled a time when I was in class, and in fact, I was in my maths class. Funny, isn't it, how maths always comes up in conversation? I don't know why <laughs> that is. Why, why, does, why is maths always mentioned first? Anyway, I think it probably polarizes people. So, you know, 
very easily it can become something that one person loves and another person hates. I'm going to get a whole bunch of statisticians on the podcast, and we're going to sort that one out once and for all. But the, the, uh, the, the thing I'd like to recall is that that was a class, that was my HSC or my you know, year 11, year 12, my final two years of school maths class. And I think that the interactions that I had with my teacher were some of the best that I'd had with any other teacher. You know, you remember back to those really influential teachers in your life that made a difference. Mm. And I, I remember that maths class being incredibly rich in its thinking and in its, in its pushing of students to, uh, um, to achieve a better understanding, higher results, all of those things. But, you know, I can even remember where that was. And coming back to Cells and Bells, would you believe it was actually in what was called D-block? In other words, right. boy, doesn't that sound like you know a, a cell reference in a prison somewhere? D block, absolutely. But, but prison D block. <laughs> Don't go into D block unless you've got uh, uh, an entourage of protection. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is, when I think about that, um, when I think about that room that was my maths classroom, it was very plain. There was nothing on the wall. Mm-hmm. There were just individual desks and chairs. They were all facing in the same direction. But it didn't bother me. For some reason, mm. we all did really well. And it must have had something to do with that incredibly good quality connection and set of interactions that we had with our maths teacher. So I think, it's, I think yeah. you're right. We, we have to be careful that we don't go too far one way or the other in thinking about environments like this. However, yeah, I, would, I, would, I would also say that some of those rooms are pretty darn awful. And maybe teachers don't like that either. Why aren't we more vocal about it? Yeah. I think it's interesting. Why aren't we more vocal about it? Perhaps it speaks to the fact that some teachers really do like being in those type of spaces. You know, that those those spaces work for them. Um, oh, no. <laughs> and is that always a bad thing? Uh, if all those other cultural forces are at play, then maybe maybe that's fine. But I guess what we need to think about is, okay, have those teachers seen a different way of doing things? Have they seen the value and the benefits that might come from alternative arrangements of the physical environment? And might that then help them in conjunction with those other cultural forces, make it an even richer place to be in if they pay attention to some of those ideas? So environment affects both culture and thinking. And we alluded to this earlier. What do our spaces say about our culture? I think um, spaces create culture. And we know that the environment is one of those cultural forces. And the interesting thing about each of the cultural forces is that they, in the way that we leverage them, shape culture. So to answer your question, I think space can say everything about culture. The way that a room looks and is set up is an expression of how a teacher is and how learners are in that place. Let's be completely utopian for a minute. And let's refer to a design theory that states uh, form follows function. And this is referenced in the chapter on environments in uh, Ron Richard's book. Let's be utopian and ask, what does a space that fosters a culture of thinking look like? Another thing that uh, Ron mentions in that same chapter is work by a gentleman called David Thornburg um, and his work around primordial learning metaphors. Oh, crikey. Which you have to were... explain that. <laughs> oh, and they're fascinating. And, and they were first identified in an essay of his called Camp, Campfires in Cyberspace, which is an intriguing title back in 2004, and then more recently in, a, in another in a book. There are a number of what Thornburg identifies as these primordial learning metaphors, 
But there are the, the first three of these particularly are taken up by a lot of schools who are interested in building utopian learning spaces, such as the ones that you're asking me about. Uh, and the three I think that are particularly interesting are the metaphors of the campfire, the watering hole and the cave. Campfire. Well, the idea behind that is that a campfire is when we come together to listen to an elder of a group and be inspired. That's what happens around campfires. How can we make that happen in schools? Teachers who are of the traditional stand and deliver, you know, chalk and talk mindset, quite often they would view every lesson that they do as being a campfire, <laughs> you know, to listen to the elder and be inspired. But I guess the question for us to ask is, are we inspired? There's yes. something lovely about, about that idea of a campfire. Every, the, the faces of the people around the campfire lit by the, the flickering light and the, the, the flame that suggests that a true campfire experience is not just being the passive recipient of boring stuff, but being inspired by the stories that are told. The campfire, how can we build learning spaces with opportunities for campfire experiences in mind? And the second one was the watering hole. If we think about what a watering hole is for animals, then that might help us understand what it looks like for learners it's when in small groups we, we bunch together and learn from each other in a conversational and non-hierarchical way. How can we build environments that facilitate watering holes taking place as well as campfires? And then finally, the cave. We all need those moments when we're going to retreat from the group to engage in a bit of individual thinking and reflection. I think a utopian learning space would be one that is designed with those type of opportunities in mind, or at least it has the flexibility for those three thinking opportunities to take place, the campfire, the watering hole, the cave. The thing I like about that is that you haven't told me to paint a wall a particular colour or organise a particular arrangement of furniture or a shop at a particular place to go and get the right furniture. You've actually got me thinking about my space or any person's space and what they can deal with, because I, I guess this is the this is one of those things that you definitely cannot rubber stamp. Yeah, completely. And I, I, this can be done in an expensive or an utterly inexpensive way. We can redesign a whole school based around principles like this. Or if there's no money at all, we can just think about how can we make this happen in different ways in our classroom, so that the form of the layout of our classroom follows the function. Uh, aligns with our core pedagogical identity. I must say, I have actually seen one learning space that was built like this, and I couldn't help thinking that uh, an apt title for the room would be the IKEA room, because <laughs> <laughs> it looked yes. like someone had, had a, an empty shell of a building and thought, all right, here's the IKEA catalogue. I'll have one of everything, thanks. Yeah, and, and it, yeah it, it just got me thinking, was, was this really thought through, or does some colourful furniture really make that much of a difference have you have you seen a couple of spaces that appear to be working i think there are there are lots of teachers around the world and many schools exploring ways of creating spaces that look a bit like this one school that some of your listeners um if they are in australia where we're conducting this interview um might want to visit is the Sydney Centre for Innovation in Learning, and that's at Northern Beaches Christian School um, here in the north of Sydney. Um, those folks are really playing around wholesale with these type of ideas and how can they create in inspirational learning spaces 
built with those type of Thornburg primordial metaphors in mind. So it's possible to do that on a wholesale basis. But then I know that there are so many teachers around the world who are just looking at, at doing this for minimal cost within the context of their classrooms. And some classrooms are really small, but, but still they can, they can provide those type of opportunities. For instance, if we uh, arrange our classroom in, in something of a horseshoe shape, then we're immediately in, um, in campfire format. But it's really easy for that then to become watering holes if children collect around either end of the horseshoe or in the middle part. Mm. And then it's really easy to push, push some desks around and also very easily create some cave space. Um, and the learning that happens in a, in a low-cost classroom like that, but which is driven by the type of pedagogy attached to those primordial learning metaphors, could very well be much more powerful than in, in a whole school where the whole school is is um, built around those principles with the IKEA furnishings that you were talking about. Because here's the thing, it it's what happens in those spaces that matters and if the pedagogy is aligned with how the space is set up. More from my discussion with Simon coming up. If you'd like to catch up on all of the interviews in this eight-part series on cultures of thinking, then check out the Learning Capacity Archives. You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or your favourite podcast service or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. It's completely free. You've mentioned cost there, so let's uh, focus on that a little bit. Whilst teachers might not be able to redesign their whole school, they might have some influence on their own classrooms, uh, if not all, if not complete influence. Richard mentions four fronts to consider when thinking about our environments. Let's see if we can draw some practical things out of this. He talks about visibility, flexibility, comfort, and indiv- invitational quality. Let's talk, mm. about, let's talk about a couple of those. Starting with visibility, what, what's he talking about there? When we think about a culture of thinking, we think how crucial it is to make thinking visible. And that can happen just in conversations when we say things like, what makes you say that? And then a child justifies their thinking. But sometimes it can actually be that physically it's made visible. And great classrooms are places, I believe, where thinking and learning is constantly up on the walls for a while, then down again, then up again. The walls send a message that it is inchoate thinking that matters in this place. In other words, thinking in progress, that's what matters. Teachers leverage these type of ideas in different ways. Quite often, I think that when you go into many secondary school classrooms, they can sometimes be deeply, deeply depressing places to be. Um, yes. And uh, that's not necessarily a criticism of um, secondary school teachers because often they are quite itinerant creatures um, who don't necessarily have the same space that they're in all the time. For that reason, primary school classrooms tend to be much richer places. There's often a lot more happening um, in terms of the way that the physical environment is laid out. But I remember a, a really interesting um, interaction that I had with a primary school teacher I worked with in the past. She was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And for the purposes of this anecdote, I'm going to call her Sally. Um, so as not to directly identify her. Okay. And, and Sally, Sally was a wonderful primary school teacher. And she came to me and she said this. She, she said, I know that my classroom is a beautiful place. 
there is um, evidence of students' work all around the walls. Um, much of it is laminated. Much of it is covered in glitter. It's beautiful in here. But, she said, I have a worry. And my worry is that the way that this classroom is set up and the work that I've got on the walls is communicating a message to my learners that it's only polished work, finished pieces ah, yes. that matter in this place. How can I turn my classroom into, into an, a physical environment that sends the message that it's work in progress that matters? So with some support from me, this is what she set her mind to. And the classroom became messier, but more thoughtful. Stuff would go up and come down. Routines like three, two, one bridge were being employed to surface children's initial thinking. That might stay up for about three weeks. Then children would pull it back down again, uh, finish the second part of the routine, three, two, one bridge, to indicate how their thinking has changed. And they could be heard to say things like, wow, I can't believe I used to think that before we plunged into this unit. Or, oh, look what my questions used to be, but my questions now are so different. Um, once we start trying to find ways to make thinking visible, that's a powerful way to leverage our environment to build a culture of thinking. Does that relate to the other front of flexibility, being able to put things up and then tear them back down again and not being too locked in? Yes, and I think also that's flexibility in terms of the way the, the learning space is set up. I remember another teacher I worked with, and I'll change his name as well. We'll call him Bob. And um, <laughs> Hello, Bob. <laughs> well, well, yes, why not, Bob? And um, one day, Bob came to me, and Bob said, okay, Simon, you've been on at me for, about, for all of these years about building a culture of thinking, so I've decided I'm going to change the layout of my classroom, and it's because you've been on at me so long to do it, and I'm going to change it from um, being in rows to cabaret style. And I thought to myself... What's cabaret style? I really, <laughs> really know what cabaret style would be. Um, but he said, oh, I want to create clusters. You've been telling me to do this, so I'm going to create clusters of learners and take them out of rows. So I said, right, well, I don't remember telling you to do that, Bob, but that's fine. Off you go. You go and do that anyway. Uh, a couple of weeks later, Bob came back to me and said, Simon, I knew this would happen. It's been an unmitigated disaster. And I thought, oh, well, that's quite interesting. Um I think that Bob always knew that it would be an unmitigated disaster um, and probably sort of proved himself right. And I think the reason why it was an unmitigated disaster, because I went and had a look at Bob's class and saw what had happened. I think the reason for that is that although Bob had changed the physical layout to cabaret style, Bob was still doing what he always did at the first place, which is mm. standing up at the front and lecturing at the children. But now they were arranged in such a way that they could look each other in the eyes and, and laugh and joke and the behavioral side of things had changed. I think what Bob realized through that experience was that we can change the physical layout of our classrooms, but we also need to think about what happens in the classrooms, that the, the layout must follow the learning opportunities that create. So now Bob's playing with the idea of developing much more flexible learning spaces where we might be in campfire one moment and then watering hole the next and cave the next and that the room is changed to fit the type of learning that needs to happen in it. I suspect that when we talk about comfort, we're talking about more than beanbags and lounges. I think so. I mean, comfort <laughs> is an interesting one. Although it's, what's it's, not to like about a beanbag, right? <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, but we want children to be comfortable. Comfort is a part, physical comfort is a part of learning space. 
with this one, I sometimes think, yeah, we want them to be physically comfortable, but we want them to be intellectually disrupted. So how can we find ways to use the physical environment to do some intellectual disruption? Okay, invitational quality. That sounds a little bit uh, abstract. What's he talking about there? Hmm. Yeah, I think classrooms need to be functional. They, they need to work for the learning that happens in them, and they need to be inviting to those that enter it. There's, uh, I've got the book open in front of me, and on, um, on page 257, I've underlined a great quotation, actually, in terms of invitational quality. And um, that quotation from Ron is, Ron asks us to think about this question. What is it in this room make, that makes me smile, takes me by surprise, or causes me to gasp in amazement? I wonder whether we could build our classrooms and think about curating our classrooms with that type of question in mind so that, that students are engaged by the experience of entering a classroom. One way that I've seen this happen in a really powerful way is when teachers create posters, often just with really big questions that are intellectually disrupting, as I was talking about before. You know, you might enter a history classroom and there's a huge poster on the wall and the poster says, what's the story? What's the other story? That would be a really wonderful way of leveraging the environment to show what's valued in that history classroom. You know, that we're not just interested in, in unearthing what happened, but we're also interested in unearthing what happened to the silent masses, to the people who have been marginalized by history. I went into a, an, into a maths classroom recently. And in that classroom, there was a huge poster on the wall above the board that said, what's another way of solving this? Communicating to everybody, all of the learners that enter this space, that maths in this classroom is about finding other ways of doing things, that there isn't just one way. And what about in any classroom? What, a, what about a big poster that just says, how are you being manipulated today? That would be a pretty interesting uh, way of using the physical environment to get them to think about the constructiveness of the world around them. Yeah, I had an awakening on the poster issue uh, some 10 years ago because I, I do most of my uh, teaching in technology classrooms. And I think they really do need a massive uh, overhaul uh, right across the board because uh, historically they've – They've been rooms where you have lots of rules. And you might even see you know, the top 10 rules of the workshop or the technology room uh, printed on the wall. But I find them so negative and so controlling. And um, some, uh, some corporations are starting to uh, pick up on this uh, quite a bit as well. For example, uh, BHP has a, uh, a WHS or a work health and safety message that, uh, that goes by the, uh, the title of zero harm. So they have a zero harm policy. So I thought... Instead of putting a sign up on the wall that said something like "Don't run" or uh, "Don't use this machine without eye protection," what if I put up a sign that said "Think zero harm"? And on the day that we did that, students came in. That was the first thing that they noticed, and you could tell that there was an immediate change in their demeanour. So I started using uh, other signs. So, for example, you, you generally don't want students consuming food in classrooms, um, and so particularly in workshops. And so instead of saying uh, don't eat food in here. I put up a sign w which showed some food but didn't have one of those horrible red circles with a cross through it. But the, uh, the text just said, please consume food outside. Mm. So it just kind of turned the whole thing around and got them thinking, well, why would I do that? Oh, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just eat that outside and then I'll come in and do some work. So Yeah, it's, it's, it's the phrasing that matters, isn't it? And 
when if you talk about food, it reminds me of a poster I had up in my classroom was a quotation from Edmund Burke, which was reading without reflecting is like eating without digesting. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> and the reason I included that and other quotations along those lines in my classroom was not only to send a message um, about the fact that thinking is of central importance in this place, but also that they quotations like that had a practical and pragmatic use. Whenever we were studying anything, I would try to connect children to some of the quotations, some of the big ideas around the room. What connections can we make between the idea in this poster and what we're reading about in the text here? So that the, the way that the words are used in the physical environment becomes part of the instructional focus, becomes part of the richness. Uh, creates connection-building opportunities. Let's use our environment in our classrooms to make that type of thing happen. I think it's another one of those two truths held in tension situations because there is a lot of talk about what works best in education uh, and thinking back to our, our the work from our friend John Hattie. And we know now that there's increasing evidence to suggest that it's the individual uh, quality of the teacher in the classroom that makes the most difference. However, having said that, thinking back to what Richard just said about when I go into a room, what makes it interesting to be in this room? What are the things that, that, that reach out and appeal to me? Well, what's not to like about that as well? I mean, we are, mm. we're, we're creatures within an environment, so we may as well like being in the environment, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think what's important here is to think about Obviously, the, the quality of the teacher and the richness of the learning opportunities they provide is the most important thing. We could view the environment as being separate to that. We could, to use John Hattie's language, say that thinking about the environment is a distraction, um, that it's not what the most important thing is, because the most important thing is helping teachers become the best that they can be. Or we could reframe it and we could help teachers to think about the environment as another cultural force that they leverage. It's another thing that they can think about to help them become the best teacher that they can be. So then it doesn't become a distraction. It becomes another cultural force in the forces toolbox, another thing to think about to help them build a culture of thinking um, in their schools and classrooms. Simon, it's been great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about the Cultures of Thinking framework, then visit ronrichart.com or the Harvard University Project Zero website at pz.harvard.edu. And if you'd like to know more about my guest, Simon Brooks, visit simonbrookseducation.com. And if you'd like to know more about LearnFast and language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.